Sometimes we just don't count the cost, do we? And things don't go the way we might expect. We've sort of been talking about that whole theme all the way through this series of lessons. And, and today as we bring this series to a close, that comes back. You know, in a very different vein, a much more serious vein. It was January 28, 1986 when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded 73 seconds after its launch. And there was lots of questions about that, naturally, and it took months to answer those questions, but we recognized after a while that this was not just one bad decision, it was really the result of several poor decisions. In the manufacturing stage, the questions were all about the O-rings, and those came back to haunt those people who had developed them at the time of the crash. And, and people wondered whether they would hold, and it was a question even on early shuttle launches whether they would, and they did. But then on that day, they failed. But why did they fail? In part, at least, because most people that were at work on this ignored the protocol for the weather. It was in the upper 30s, about 20 degrees colder than any other shuttle launch. And they really didn't think through how the cold weather would affect those O-rings. And then there were the political considerations at work as well. Morton Thiokol, the manufacturer of the solid rocket boosters, was working on contracts with the government and hoping to get those contracts. And so they wanted to go ahead with the launch because delaying would look bad. And then was, there was the administration hoping to have the first teacher in space come back and then be part of the State of the Union address just days later. All those things, all those small decisions added up to one really poor decision that cost the lives of several people. And that's the way it is in life. Sometimes we do have the monumentally bad decision that one person makes that causes all kinds of problems. But I think more often what we have is a series of what seem like small decisions that lead to terrible results because things begin to spiral out of control. One look between coworkers, rather than being ignored, is explored. And before long, a relationship begins that's inappropriate and can ultimately lead to the destruction of a marriage, of a family. A drink taken at the wrong time leads to too many drinks, which leads to a pattern and leads to addiction and causes problems in families, in lives, in workplaces. The offer of drugs is accepted and leads again to things getting out of control and addiction and problems and more problems. These seemingly small decisions have long-lasting and powerful consequences because they lead us down the wrong path. Now the question is, how do we deal with those early decisions? That's what I want us to think about today. We bring to a close this series of lessons I'm calling Self-Destruct Sequence. And we're looking at the life of King Saul in the Old Testament. And studying this life that really is a sort of an example of bad decisions made over and over again. Beginning with Saul, the one who has all this promise. Head and shoulders above everyone else, so the obvious leader chosen by God to be king, and that's communicated through the prophet Samuel. But then he begins to make some decisions that seem like they're not that big, but ultimately lead to his life spiraling out of control and then tragedy in the end. And that's really where we are today. It's a difficult passage that we look at today in 1 Samuel 28, and then the close of his life a little bit later on. But that's where we are, 1 Samuel 28. We have Saul who, who knows that his sons are not going to reign on the throne. Saul who knows that the kingdom is going to be taken from him. Saul who knows that his relationship with God is not in the right place. Saul who knows that the Philistine army is out there and ready to attack. 
and he doesn't know what to do. Here's a man who has really forsaken God. He's come this far in that he's got this enemy, David. This young man that he was close to has now gone over to the Philistines and is encamped with them. He hears that his own priests have something to do with David. It's all unclear, but because he has this suspicion and paranoia, he has all the priests killed. Only one escapes. And of course, he does go to David. So Saul is, is looking for an answer from God, but so many of the people that could give him that answer are gone. The priests are gone. Samuel is dead. And so he seeks out ways to know what to do. He's looking for, okay, do I attack the Philistines and God's going to make me victorious in battle? Do I stay where I am and hope for some last-minute salvation? Do I retreat hoping to save my life and the lives of the people in the army? Saul is stuck with that and he wants God's answer to that question. And so he seeks out the, the lots that we talked about, the Urim and the Thummim. Sort of, you, you cast lots and hope that God speaks through that, but he got no answer. He attempted to, to sleep, to get him himself, himself into a state where God could speak to him through a vision or a dream, and he got nothing. He went to prophets hoping for a word from the Lord, and they gave him nothing. Now here's where we have to take another step back and look at where Saul is. Early on in his reign, Saul was serious about ruling in a way that pleased God and fulfilling the, the law that God had given through Moses. And Saul, and Saul knew that in Deuteronomy 18, Moses had said, the mediums and spiritists are unacceptable to God. Why? Because they would seek out the mediums and spiritists for answers that they should find in God's Word and God speaking to the people through his prophets. It was idolatry. And so they were cast out. And Saul took that seriously, and he removed all these people from his kingdom. That's the early Saul. But this story is, is another study in where Saul has fallen to. Because when he can get no answer from God on the questions that he's asked, what he does is he brings his closest commanders in and he says, listen, I want you to find a medium for me to visit. And what's amazing is they know exactly where to go. The village of Endor. And so here Saul goes, knowing he shouldn't be there because he goes in disguise, not wanting anyone to see the king walking into this part of town, to this house, to seek this woman out. But that's exactly what he does. Probably also disguised so that she doesn't know who he is, so that she'll speak to him. Since he's cast out all the mediums and spiritists. So he goes to this house and he asks this woman, bring up for me the person I asked. Now what did that mean? The mediums would dig a pit and they would put in that pit some sacred objects. They would cover it up so when the spirits came from the pit, they couldn't escape. And then the person who came to the medium would have to bring sacrifices, meat or, or bread or something to attract the spirit. So uh, Saul says, I want you to bring this spirit up and listen to her response. 1 Samuel 28, verse 9, the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? In other words, who? Me? What are you talking about? Saul's outlawed all the spiritists. How could it be that, that I would do something like that? And so we have from the word of this woman, Saul being reminded of the man he used to be, but no longer is. Saul's response 
is to swear on the name of Yahweh. That's the private, personal name for God that the people of Israel were always supposed to use with incredible care and caution. Saul swears on God's name, Yahweh's name, that no harm will come to her. So he says, bring up Samuel. Verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? asked Saul. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself to the ground. Strange story, isn't it? One of the sort of odd stories that we find in 1 Samuel. What's going on here? Is this woman surprised? I mean, she she sort of shrieks out. Is she surprised because all this hocus-pocus for once actually worked? Well, maybe. Is she surprised because, hey, this really is Samuel, and he's one of the greatest of the prophets, known for his zeal for God, known for being pretty direct, and maybe she's just afraid... I'm messing with the wrong guy here. Is she just shocked because now she knows since this is Samuel, it must be Saul. Maybe she suspected he was taller than everyone else. I don't know exactly what's going on here. But what I do know is that somehow Samuel is present in some kind of form so that he and Saul have this conversation. And it doesn't go well. It seems like this is the only place Saul could go to get some kind of word from God. Samuel is dead, but, but maybe he can say something. But they sort of pick up where they left off. And it's not in a good place. Verse 15, Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? In other words, you were a pain when I was alive, and now you're even worse now that I'm dead, Okay? What are you thinking? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God, this is key, God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams, so I've called on you to tell me what to do. Saul doesn't see a way out, and maybe Samuel has something. But that key phrase God has departed from me. Sort of characterizes where Saul is at this point in his life. Then verse 16, Samuel's response. And it's not pleasant. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord, Yahweh, has departed from you? And it's not just departed from you. He takes Saul's language and then takes it a step further. Has departed from you and become your enemy. They have set themselves against one another. It's not just that God isn't there, but that they are against one another. The Lord has done what He predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out His fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. And here's what's going to happen. The Lord will deliver both Israel and and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. In other words, dead. 
The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And that's really what happens. Here's Saul. Listening to these words, not having eaten all day, probably because of his distress. And as he begins to process this, it hits him. And suddenly, he's on the ground. He's fainted. I think this woman has probably retreated at least to the side and maybe out of the room during this Samuel-Saul conversation. Maybe she hears him hit the ground. I don't know. But suddenly she's there and she's trying to get him up and get him a place to sit. And, and then the strangest thing happens. She, she decides this is the time for sort of a banquet. She goes and kills the fatted calf. She makes bread. All in a meal for Saul. Why? Well, partly because the king is in her home and partly because she can see his distress. But think about this. Saul the king, in the bad part of town, wearing the clothes of a common man, in the home of a woman who should have been cast out of his kingdom because of her sin, is eating what very well may have been his last meal. Because the next day, Saul did go into battle. And the Philistines were much stronger than the Israelite army. And they were advancing through the Israelite line. Saul's wounded by an archer. He knows he's going to die. He asks his armor bearer to run him through. He won't do it. And Saul falls on his own sword. And it's just a, just a tragic ending to a tragic story. I and mean, what we want to hear is, is the, a good death. Like what we find with Abraham. Back in Genesis 25, then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. That's a good death in the Old Testament. Dying of natural causes at an old age with your family around you and you're buried among your fathers and your grandfathers and your great-grandfathers. But that's not what Saul gets. Death on a battlefield at his own hand. And as I sort of come to the end of this story that's not pleasant, that we don't enjoy reading, I begin to think, okay, what do we get from this? What do we gain from this story? Is there any lesson to be learned from the life of Saul? And as I think about that, over looking back over the whole stretch of the story, what comes to me is, is one clear lesson. Consider the consequences. Consider the consequences of the decisions you make. Consider the consequences of what you're thinking about doing or thinking about saying or the relationship you're thinking about getting into. Consider the consequences of that. Now that all requires us to step back, doesn't it? When we're being tempted, when we're being drawn into something, our usual inclination is to turn our brains off as much as we can and just jump in. And what this story tells me is step back back because if Saul had done that if he had done that early on if he had thought before he acted way back in the story before he went down the path that led to destruction it could have been so much easier because it seems to me the further he went down that path the more difficult it became for him to find reality and find God and find the person that God had called him to be consider the consequences. So step back and ask some questions. You could come up with your own questions. Here are three you could ask. 
Number one, how will this affect my relationship with God? Is what I'm about to do going to put me in a closer relationship with God? Is this going to be something that pursues God? Am I going to know God better after this? Or is this going to set up a barrier between me and God? God's not going anywhere, but where am I going? Where is this going to lead me? And it's going to begin my walk down a path of destruction away from God. Is it going to feel like God has departed from me because I've walked so far away from Him? Number two, how does this affect my relationship with my family? With my spouse, with my kids, my parents, grandparents, grandchildren. Is this something that's going to make them say, I'm proud to be part of this family. I'm honored that this is my dad, my mom, my spouse, my children. Is this going to lead to that or is there going to be a a broken relationship? As we look down that path, which path is it taking us down? A path that, that really is away from a healthy, vital relationship with our families? Or maybe it's a place where it is going to lift all those things up. And then three, how does this affect my job? I mean, the people who work around me, how is what I'm about to do going to affect them? And is someone going to have to come to me and say, hey, this can't be, this is not the way we do business. This is not how we conduct ourselves. We have to step back to ask those questions, but we need to do just that. Because it can wake us up to where we're going. To avoid all those Little, seemingly little, decisions that lead us down the path to self-destruction. It's so much easier to reverse course here than it is at the end of the path. It's hard to turn around there. And that's what Saul's life really teaches us. Now, one sort of caveat we need to make. It's not that we can never turn around once we walk down that path. The message of the New Testament is that people can change, that God can be at work, that His Spirit is powerful, that we can be forgiven, and that we are offered eternal life. What I'm saying is, it's a whole lot easier to stay on the right course than it is to get back on the right course. None of us wants to end up where Saul did. It's a simple lesson. Consider the consequences. Let's pray together. God, it's a painful story. And maybe we have people in our lives whose story is just as painful and we hurt for them. God, we pray that you'll give us the strength, the courage, the wisdom, everything we need to make the right decisions before we begin down a path that can lead to our destruction. God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.